that their family may have done that impacted the world. There's a whole industry, you guys have seen the ads online for Ancestry.com or sending your DNA in and they tell you that you were probably Genghis Khan's third cousin or something like whatever it is. But there's this whole industry that goes into that. My wife has been able to track down quite a bit of the roots of her family. She has found out that her great-grandmother on her dad's side was born on an Indian reservation in Oklahoma, on the Osage India Indian Reservation. Now, if you know my wife, you know she does not look Native American, except for she's got those really high, beautiful cheekbones. I mean, she is beautiful. Okay, um, and so she is. She's Native. If you, if you met her dad, you'd be like, oh, okay, but she doesn't look like him. Praise the Lord. I mean, I love my father-in-law, but I wouldn't have married him. Um, she found that out. She found out that uh, on her uh, mom's side, her great-great-grandmother actually had a ticket to ride the Titanic and then somehow ended up on a ship a couple weeks before that. So she didn't get on the Titanic, thank God, because if not, my life looks very, very different. So you get to learn these fun things. She also found out she's related to the Kennedys, which is random. But uh, Maria Shriver's one of her cousins, so she gets to find all these things out. I'm the opposite. I know nothing about my family. Uh, on my uh, biological father's side, I never met my biological father until I was 30 years old, and I know nothing about his family. On my biological mother's side, all I know is that there's some Italian going on in here, which explains my taste in food and carbohydrates. I actually know more, weirdly, about my step-grandfather, who was actually the man who raised me, who has no biological connection to me. But he's got an interesting backstory because he fought in World War II in France and Germany against Nazis. He received a Bronze Star for heroism or doing something great. Uh, he was also an inventor and an engineer. A few years ago, you want to throw up that next slide for me? A few years ago, I actually found over on the right there, those are four patents from the U.S. Patent uh, Service from the 1960s for things that my grandfather, Bob, invented. If you are a keen eye, you might notice those are toilets. If you've ever used a toilet on an airplane or a train or some sort of portable toiletry system, you can thank my granddad because he invented them. And uh, that one on the top right is an electric toilet, which sounds scary to me. I don't want those things to go together. Uh, on the bottom right, he invented a lot of the early iterations of time valves that would turn things on at a certain time. Uh, so he was a brilliant man on top of being a World War II fighter. He was an amazing man who raised me even though he didn't need to, and so I take a lot of pride in being his son, but it still isn't connected. I can't claim to be a genius because he was a genius biologically, and it goes back from there. This is just random, forgive me, 
His great-great-grandfather, go to the next slide, was a guy named George Corliss. And he invented the Corliss steam engine, which you can see a picture of at the World's Fair in 1876. It was the biggest steam engine ever made. It had a new valve technology that allowed it to be more uh, efficient than any other steam engine had ever been. There, I've met train nerds who still talk about Corliss steam valves that I don't know what they are, but that engine was started at the World's Fair in Philadelphia in 1876 by President Ulysses S. Grant and the Emperor of Brazil. And uh, that, that's my grandpa's great-great-grandpa, and that's, that's pretty good. I actually think if you look at that picture, if you slap a sweet mustache on that, that's granddad right there. So pretty cool. That's a little bit of my family history. However, for us, learning those sorts of things is just kind of a fun hobby, right? In the world that Jesus was born into, knowing who you were descended from actually was your identity. It was everything about you. If you read through the early parts of Genesis and First Chronicles, you'll see how important family lineage was for the Hebrew people. And if you read through Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, which we're about to do, you're going to see that it is still massively important to them at the first century when Jesus is born. So, if you have a Bible or device, open up to Matthew chapter 1. And I'm going to do my best to read a lot of names that are barely pronounceable in the English language. So bear with me, and if you are a Greek or Hebrew scholar, please bear with me. I'm going to do my best. This is the very beginning of the New Testament. If you just crack open the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Notice that. Notice that first line says, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes on. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shilti, Shetiel, and Shetiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of 
Matzdan, and Matzdan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. A long time. In our culture, when you're first getting to know somebody, what do you usually ask them? What do you do? What's your job? Because in our culture, we find our identity in our work. So usually you might find out their name and say, what do you do for a living? What do you fill your time with? That was not the case in first century Israel. If you met somebody, the first thing you want to know is, Who's your father? What family are you from? And that would give people a full understanding of who you were and who you were descended from. And that meant everything in their culture. It was your heritage. It would show your inheritance, your legitimacy, your property rights, your tribal membership. Everything that they valued came down to whose family are you a part of? We take all of that into consideration. You begin to understand why Matthew and also Luke take bunches of words to give us these genealogies that, let's be honest, most of us look at and say, interesting, next, because it's a whole lot of names that we don't really understand or know how to say. And so I know most of you probably read the Gospels and you saw those names that were nearly impossible to pronounce and you just kind of went right past them. But I hope you're going to see today how massively important the genealogy of Jesus is. These genealogies show us that Jesus is a human being. He isn't just this God who shows up in the middle of everything out of nowhere like who's the priest? Melchizedek, thank you. I kept thinking Manasseh, because I just read that. Melchizedek, he's not like that. He actually has a place in history. He has a genealogy. And so they show us who he is. And, listen, that he is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies that have been going on for generations and generations. And these genealogies, as much as sometimes we don't like it, are a part of Scripture. And the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So all Scripture, the Bible tells us, is there to teach us something. And we can learn a lot from these names. They are no exception to what's going on. So the Jewish people had kept extensive and specific records of their family for generations. Even keeping most of the written records in the temple because they were safe there. And so they would keep all those records there. And so the gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, may have had, had access to actually go into the temple and read these records, which gives them all of these names that follow Jesus' heritage all the way back. 
Like I said, Matthew and Luke both write out the genealogy of Jesus, genealogy of Jesus, but they do it in different ways. Matthew starts his letter with the genealogy that we just read, whereas Luke, all the way in chapter three of Luke, kind of goes back and talks about where Jesus came from. Matthew starts his line from Abraham and works forward to Jesus. Luke starts with Jesus and goes all the way back to Adam, to the very beginning. Here's the most interesting thing about these genealogies to me. If you look at them chronologically, starting from Abraham and moving forward, the first 14 generations of these genealogies are absolutely identical. Can you throw that slide up for me, Shannon? There it is. Okay. If you read the top, I know it's kind of small, but if you look at that top part, from Abraham to David, it's exactly the same, which would make sense to you, right? Because it's the family line of one person. But then after David, they get very different. And so some people have looked at that and said, okay, well, there, that's a problem because the genealogies in Matthew and Luke are different. But if you actually pay close attention, it's not a problem. This is where we're going to get real Bible nerdy. Okay? Sorry. Not sorry. If you start to read this, most Bible scholars think, and I think they're right, that Matthew, on the left side, gives us the genealogy, the legal genealogy of Jesus. It starts with Abraham. It follows all the way down to who's the very last name on that list? Joseph. And in the Hebrew culture, your legal standing came through your father, which we know Joseph is not Jesus' biological father, but he's legally his father. And so he follows that line all the way from Abraham to Joseph. Luke doesn't really write for the Hebrews as much as he writes for the Gentiles and for the world at large. He's more concerned about the spiritual pedigree of Jesus. And so his genealogy goes all the way from Abraham to whose last name on that list? Mary. Mary. We know Mary is Jesus' biological mom. And so the biological, the spiritual line goes through Mary all the way back to not only Abraham, but to Adam. Right? But the legal line, if you're a Jewish scholar, you want to know how do you have a legal claim to being the son of David and the seed of Abraham? He goes through that side. Two different genealogies, both completely valid. Now you might look at that and like, wait, does that mean that Joseph and Mary are related? Yes, but way back. Way back. Although there is that weird little spot right in the middle where it says intermarriage, something weird was going on right there. Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, we don't know exactly what goes on, but suddenly those names merge and then diverge again. But the point is both of these genealogies are the legitimate genealogies of Jesus' life. Matthew, like I said, is written concerned about his legal claim, and so he goes through his father. In order for someone to be the Messiah, from Old Testament, in order for you to be the Messiah, you have to be able to prove that you are a son of David. Therefore, you have a right to the throne of Israel. And you are 
Abraham's offspring, which means you are the you have the racial right to the Hebrew people. Luke cares more about the spiritual. So he says, I want to know that it has passed directly bloodline from Adam to Jesus. Matthew's and Luke's list, they diverge. Notice, this is just interesting if you're a Bible scholar, nerd person. Notice where they diverge, right after David. So if you know your story of David, which we're going to talk about more, but that's when it diverges. Joseph comes down through the Solomon line. Mary comes down through the Nathan line. So they're both, they're both legitimate, and they're both their main focus. The thing that Matthew starts with is that he is a son of David and the seed of Abraham. That was, was how the Jewish people measured that you could make a claim to be the Messiah. Jesus fulfills all of these Old Testament prophecies, and there's actually hundreds of them that he fulfilled, but just a few. He's born of a woman, which, yes, everyone. So that's not that. But he's born of a woman. Genesis 3.15 said he'd be born of a woman. But that does mean that he's born as a human being, not just a random God that shows up out of nowhere. He's born And he's the seed of Abraham, Genesis 22 says. Okay, so that narrows it down. Of all the people in the world, he's got to come from Abraham. And then it narrows it down more. From the tribe of Judah. Well, that narrows it down a little bit more. But within that tribe, from the line of David, 2 Samuel tells us. And so more and more it gets filtered down to, you have to have all of these things to claim that you are the Messiah. And he fulfills all of them. And far more than that. He's born in Bethlehem. He's from Nazareth. He comes out of Egypt and on and on. There's all these specific prophecies that would have to be true for the Messiah, and they're all true for Jesus. Here's another interesting thing to me. The Jewish people who are still awaiting the Messiah today. If you you talk to a Jewish person right now today, and they said, we don't think Jesus is the Messiah. We're still waiting for the Messiah. They have a problem. Because in order to be the Messiah, you have to prove that you are the son of David and the seed of Abraham. But a little while after Jesus had his life on earth, a Roman general named Titus came in and completely destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. And in that temple were all of the written documents and the heritages of those families. So nobody alive today can possibly come to you and say, I have proof that I am the son of David, that I have the right to the throne of Israel, and that I am the seed of Abraham. Nobody can possibly do that. Jesus Christ is the only living man who can make that claim. So next time, a cult leader rises up on TV or wherever, a David Koresh-type character comes to you and says, I'm the Messiah. After you stop laughing, ask them a couple questions. Where were you born? Oh, New York City? No. What Hebrew tribe are you from? Oh, you're not Jewish? Sorry, no. 
Can you prove beyond a shadow of a doubt legally that you are a descendant of King David and the seed of Abraham? Oh, you can't? You're not the Messiah. I listened to one pastor this week where a guy came to him, came to his office. This is a pastor of a large church. Guy comes in and says, I'm the Messiah. And he said, where are you from? Pittsburgh. Mm, I don't think you're the Messiah. And then when he kept claiming, he's like, all right, if you can show me proof that you are uh, from the line of David and Abraham, I'll listen to you, which, of course, he couldn't. Only Jesus can do this. If you ever hear one of these people, if you ever pulled in, oh, this guy looks so great, he's so spiritual, and he claims to be the Messiah, it doesn't matter. Unless he can prove these things, that he is Jesus, then he's not. There's another thing about Jesus' genealogical records that blows me away. And it's something that's just really meaningful to me as a person. And maybe you're with me on this. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're from an amazing family. Maybe your family is just full of, like, Rhodes Scholars and, like, amazing human beings and all that stuff. Mine's not. So I look at this story, and I love that the, the family line of Jesus is not perfect. In fact, it is far from perfect. You start to go through these names as we've gone through, and you look at the spiritual heritage of the people that Jesus descends from. You start to wonder, like, really, God, this was the family that you chose? Right? Let's look at him. Adam. Instant out. The original sinner. Adam and his wife Eve fail to trust God. They give in to their desire to be prideful. Pride gains control over them, and they fall from perfect harmony with God. Immediately. Abraham, the great father of the Hebrew nation, but also a fearful liar, who is so afraid of the leaders of Abimelech and the Pharaoh in Egypt that he lied and said that Sarah, his wife, was his sister so that he wouldn't be killed and put his wife in serious danger twice, not once. Then later has a child with another woman because they still don't trust God. That child and the child of the promise end up at battle and are still today. Their nations are still in battle. So Adam, Abraham, Jacob was a cheater and manipulated his elder brother elderly father into giving him a blessing that was supposed to go to his brother Esau. And he was a mama's boy. Which might be good. Might be, I don't know. Judah. Ooh. Judah. Sorry, parents, if your kids have to have something explained to them after this one. Judah got a woman pregnant that he thought was a prostitute, but was actually his son's widow. whom he had legally, illegally withheld his other son from taking as a wife. See, in their culture, if a woman had married a son, and then he dies, then his next brother is supposed to give her an offspring to care for her. Well, this woman had married Judah's son. He died. So she married his next brother. He died. And so then the dad's like, something's wrong here. I'm not giving her another brother, but legally he was supposed to, and he doesn't. And so she tricks him 
into thinking that she's a prostitute. He sleeps with her, gets her pregnant with twins. We're going to come back to this story. Judah, right? We say, hail, hail, the Lion of Judah. Ugh. Judah? That's, that's what we're pointing to? David, you know, was an adulterer who stole the wife of a man who fought for him, and then he became a murderer by intentionally having that man killed so that he could keep his wife. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and wrote of his own life that he was full of decadence and he withheld nothing from himself. Manasseh was an idolater who worshipped many false pagan gods, and practice every conceivable evil and perversion. He took part in witchcraft, murder, and even sacrificed one of his own sons to a pagan god. Jeconiah was so evil that in Jeremiah 22, the Lord cursed him and said that none of his offspring could succeed in sitting on the throne of David, which is interesting because if you remember that list we had up there, Jeconiah was on the legal side with Joseph, but not on the biological side with Mary. Because Joseph's side was actually cursed. And you couldn't sit on the throne with David. But Mary's side was not. There's another thing that's really interesting about this genealogical heritage. Something that nobody else would have done at this time in the world. It includes women's names. Now, I don't mean that to sound sexist, but that was the case of the world at that time. If you looked at somebody's family ancestry, women were not even listed. The ancestry came through the father alone. But as we read through this, you may have noticed there's some women's names in this lineage. And yet again, these women are not the perfect Jewish mama that you would think would be a part of Jesus' family line. Tamar was the woman that Judah got pregnant. His son's widow. She dresses up as a prostitute, tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her. He abuses her and does it. And then, if you, you want to read a crazy story, go back and read this story, because her father-in-law finds out that she's pregnant. He's like, oh, stone her. And then she's like, oh, the person I slept with, this is his ring. And then he's like, oh. That's who she is. So Tamar is in his family line. Rahab was a Gentile and a harlot. But despite her non-Jewishness and her profession, she hides two of Israel's spies from the enemies that want to kill them. And she later becomes the mother of Boaz, which if you remember the book of Ruth, you're like, Boaz, the greatest man alive. Every woman swoons at Boaz, right? Ruth is the next line down. And Ruth seems like a great gal, but she's a Moabitess, which for the Jewish people, that's terrible. You cannot be a Moabitess. She's from the land of Moab. There's all kinds of history behind there. And so there's a Moabitess in the family line of Jesus. And the last woman in this line isn't even mentioned by name because it calls more attention to who she actually is, because it says, the wife of Uriah, meaning, remember the guy that David had murdered? 
His wife, Bathsheba, is in this family line. Somehow, the family line of Jesus is not filled with nobility and perfection. Far from it. And yet they are still a part of this story of how Jesus comes into the world flesh. Now this is an amazing story for everyone. But maybe especially if if you're like me, and the story of your life has a lot of brokenness in the background, not just in your life, but maybe generational sins and brokenness. To see that God still uses these people gives me so much hope that God can maybe use me. That God can use my children. That we are not automatically cast out because the generations before us were imperfect. Or because our families were broken and we came from dysfunction. God still uses these people. And it blows me away every time I think about the fact that God has allowed me to do anything with my life, being where I'm from. And I look at this family line and say, God, you're so good. God, you're so good. The overall idea here of this genealogical language is that Jesus, who we talked about last week as being the Logos, right? He is the creator of everything. But he is also the Messiah. That the, that the scriptures have been foretelling for thousands of years. He is the creator. And he is the one that is spoken about in the scriptures. That will come to save the creation that he created. The prophecies. The promises. The covenants. Everything in the Bible. It's all one story. Do you know that? People say, oh, Old Testament. No, it's one story of a God who creates everything and then comes into his own creation to save his own creation. And we get to be a part of this story, but we are not the main character. I hate to shock your world if you think you're the main character in your story. But you're not. It's the story of the Son. Jesus created, Jesus was promised, Jesus was born, he lived, he died, he rose again, and he reigns in his people, and he will come again. It is all history, his story. And all those names that we read today were a part of leading towards his life, his death. His resurrection. And all of us here today have also been invited to become a part of his story. We get to be a part of the story where he builds his kingdom on earth and into eternity. May we all answer when he gives us that invitation and says, Would you like to be a part of this overarching narrative of creation? I pray that all of us would give the same answer that the prophet Isaiah once did. Here am I, Lord. Send me.